word with you. Today we come to a verse that is a favorite of millions of people across the globe. And it is probably one of your favorites as well. You'll find it on coffee mugs, wall banners, greeting cards, and the like. Even those loosely tied to the church often know this verse and look to it for a pick-me-up. Well, what is this verse? What is this verse that everybody loves so much? It's Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. And the line that sticks with us is that God causes all things to work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good. Robert Morgan, in his book, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, acclaims this about it. Morgan says, Romans 8.28 is arguably the greatest promise in the Bible, for it summarizes all the others. It's the biblical basis for optimism and the promise that morphs us into resilient sanguines, whatever our temperament. It's God's dark room in which negatives become positive. It's his situation reversal machine in which heartaches are changed into hallelujahs, end quote. In the grandest sense, Morgan is right. This verse, this verse does summarize all the others as it relates to God's plan for us, and it does contain one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. We should be enthralled with such a grand promise as this one. I must admit, I have been afraid of preaching on this verse. Who am I to open up such a well-beloved and well-known verse? Who am I, young and experienced as I am, to convey such glorious light? Such a rich, rich truth from such a broken vessel as myself. I've been nervous as we've come through this chapter, knowing it was coming. and I've been nervous this week, but I must say it's been a joy to study it and to prepare for this task this morning. And so may God's strength be made all the more perfect in my great weakness this morning. And before we dive in, let us open up in a word of prayer and ask for the Lord to bless this time. Let us pray. Lord above, we look to you now. We look to your word. We look to your scriptures. God, may they bless our heart and mind. And may we love you more and trust you more in the light of this great truth. God, help us all to have listening ears and open hearts to what your word would have us learn today. Bless this, reading, this teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. And as you get there, let's set the greater context as we've been walking through this, this great, fantastic chapter. And we come to this verse in Romans 8 that is really the climax, the climax of the chapter. If we were to look at chapter 8 as a mansion, we would see that Paul began on the front porch with no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is the door that you must pass through to enter this chapter, and you cannot forget it. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul then brought us into the majestically vaulted entryway by explaining how life in the Spirit has set us free from sin and death. He opened some windows for the fresh air of adoption as God's sons and daughters. And then in verse 17, he turned a corner and began to take us down a dark hallway of suffering, a hallway which every Christian must pass through on their way to the eternal realms of future glory. And at the end of verse 17, we see suffering and glory melded together. The two cannot be separated. 
And it's as, it's as if, as in this, on the walls in suffering's dark hallway, that there are framed paintings of the glory, framed paintings of the glory to come. And it's as we look at these paintings that we are inspired to keep going. But they're hard to see in the dark. They're, they're hard to see in the midst of our suffering. But the more we focus on these paintings, the more we focus on their glory, the more we can see the shapes and the contours of that future glory we've been promised. The longer we're in the hallway of the suffering, the better our eyes can even adjust the low light, and the better we can even see these framed images of the future glory, of our future delight. And if we, if we wish to actually experience this glory and enter the realms of light, we must endure through the suffering. We must endure through the suffering that comes in this life. We must move forward and not give up, no matter how long the path of pain may be. This is a scriptural truth that if we wish to see glory, we must first suffer. That was Jesus' pattern, and it shall be ours as well. Look at verse 17. Just back up and look up at verse 17. It says this, And if we're children, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And so suffering and glory is the pivotal argument all the way from verse 18 down to verse 30. A few weeks, a few months back, actually, we looked at verses 18 to 25, and we were called there to anticipate the future glory so that you may endure the present sufferings. Anticipate the future glory so you may endure the present sufferings. That's the first ingredient in the recipe for the Christian suffering, and that is endurance. Endurance. This morning, we're going to see a second ingredient in verses 28 to 30, and that is trust. Trust in God. Indeed, suffering is a sad fact of life. It cannot be ignored or removed. Indeed, last week we learned the Spirit, that though He has the power, He does not remove our sufferings. Recall last week, He does not remove our sufferings, but what does He do? He helps us in our sufferings. He prays perfect prayers to God the Father, helping us amidst our weakness helping us amidst our weakness. And so we come back today to suffering and glory, and we're encouraged again to press on through the dark. And we're given the second instruction, the second ingredient, and that is trust. Trust in God. We have a commitment to endurance, ingredient number one, and the second is the trust that God knows what he's doing. And that is what makes verse 28, and really all of verses 28 to 30, so grand. The promise of verse 28 really is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture, if not the greatest. And it is right for us to memorize and internalize and immortalize such a promise. But this verse does not say what many of us think it says. It's true, many of us have perhaps a misguided notion of what verse 28 is promising. And I have to confess that I was in this boat until Thursday. In my studies, having translated the passage from Greek, read through and took notes on a few commentaries, I went back to the text to meditate on it, to seek understanding. And as I read and reread the passage and sifted over the Greek grammar, it dawned on me that I was mistaken. I have accidentally misapplied this passage in my own life circumstances, applying it incorrectly. 
I have been guilty in times of my own trial and suffering in life of putting my trust in a promise that's not here while missing the even greater promise that is here. There is an incredible promise here in verse 28. I've been missing it for a lesser non-existent one and it's my hunch, my suspicion that I'm not alone. And so just so you think that I'm not stepping out into uncharted theological territory this morning because that is always pretty much heretical when someone does that, let me assuage any fears by giving you a few quotes from other pastors on the same point. Larry Osborne says of verse 28 the same thing. He says, no verse gets misquoted more often when it comes to trying to make sense out of life's trials. This verse sounds well and it sells well, but Romans 28 doesn't say or mean what most people think it does. Luke Timothy Johnson says it strongly. Romans 8.28 is a statement which has become dangerously distorted by being used out of context. So you see, we're in good company. So have we got this verse all wrong? No, not entirely. But some of us, myself included, have misunderstood its main thrust and thus have been misapplying its comforting truths to our lives. And I believe that what's truly taught here is far better than what we tend to think is taught here. We'll need to see the promise of verse 28 in context to fully understand its power and to fully set our hearts on trusting the God of this promise. So let's do that. Let's jump into our text. We'll start by backing up. Again, we'll cover this full section on suffering and glory starting in verse 18. And we'll read down to verse 30. Look with me in your scriptures, Romans 8, starting in verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So ends the reading of God's word. May he inscribe it on our hearts. We'll begin this morning jumping right into point number one, 
God's promise, which we see here in verse 28, God's promise. Now, for 14 years, for 14 years, Seth Esvelt has been entirely dependent on his parents for care. On August 16th, 2003, he swerved his car on a California freeway to avoid an accident, but instead plummeted 30 feet off an embankment. He himself was thrown another 30 feet from his car, where first responders found him unconscious and not breathing. He did survive, and his survival was deemed a miracle by the chief trauma physician. But Seth suffered a lacerated lung, broken ribs, collarbone, pelvis, damage to his liver, and a very severe concussion that left him, that, that irreparably damaged a portion of his brain. And after three months in hospitals and another two years in permanent nursing care, Seth was brought home by his parents, where he is currently, even this morning, being cared for by his father, Craig. Perhaps you're familiar with this story. Maybe you've heard it before, as caring for Seth is the daily blessing and burden of Barry Margaret Martin's former pastor, Craig Esvelt. Craig even preached here a number of years ago and shared this story as part of his message, so perhaps you've heard it. Well, Seth is now today 37, and he has been essentially paralyzed for over 14 years. He's barely able to communicate, sometimes responding to questions or comments with hand or foot twitches or raising an eyebrow, but often not. Many times he makes no movement at all when you talk to him. He's entirely dependent upon others for food, clothing, and the other necessities of life. It's been 14 years, and Seth, praise the Lord, is in good health, but surely another 14 years and then some are still in store for Craig of constant care for his beloved son. And the real question is, how is this working out for Craig's good? How is this working out for Seth's good? Furthermore, back in 2012, Craig's beloved wife, Mary, was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor and passed away five months after. Seth's main caregiver and Craig's closest companion and helper was gone. Since then, Craig has done all the caring for his son, and it appears it will continue that way long into the future. How is this working out together for Craig's good? How is this scenario working out for anyone's good? You see, Romans 8.28 is a very difficult verse for some people. Probably for most of us, this verse, as we typically think of it, leads to praise. But for some who see no light at the end of the tunnel, this verse leads to perplexity. New Testament professor Edmund Hybert explains thus. He says, faced with the sufferings and catastrophic experiences of life, many believers and even Christian leaders have found it difficult to accept this categorical assertion. During World War II, a prominent preacher designated Romans 8.28 as the hardest verse in the Bible to believe, end quote. And, and rightly so. Just think, just think of all the atrocities of World War II. How could the pointless deaths of millions upon millions of people be worked out for anyone's good? And so while we often look at this verse and render praise to God as we should, for many people this verse only entails great perplexity. How can it possibly be true? Perhaps that's even you this morning. You've lost all hope of a good outcome. You don't truly think God could possibly be working good in your situation. Or perhaps you've experienced something in your past and you still wonder, God, what was the point in that? I haven't seen any good result from having to go through that. Maybe that's you. 
And so how can this verse possibly be true? Let's see if we can make heads or tails of this important question. We'll start by looking at this verse phrase by phrase and word by word. We need to first comprehend it before we can explain anything of it. So look at verse 28. Let me reread verse 28 and we'll dig in. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This begins with we know. We know. For Paul's readers, this is less of a new doctrine than it is a reminder of truth. Through all the biblical truths we know about God, this promise is natural based on his character. God is loving. He is good, and he wants good for his children. This is a natural promise that we should expect. This is something to a degree that we should already know. And again, we cannot miss, actually did already miss the, the injunction and to start off the verse, and. It directly connects us back to last week's message in verse 26 and 27. Why do all things work together for good? Because the Holy Spirit is praying for you and for me. The Spirit's praying for us and he will ensure that everything works for our good. And that everything is done in accordance with God's perfect will. His perfect prayers bring about perfect results. And I think that's why Paul brings up this topic now in verse 28. If anyone doubts the Spirit's prayers are effective for them, they must remember this well-known promise that everything works together for good to those who love God. Now look back into your text. We see in the NASB, it says, God causes all things to work together for good. God causes. However, many translations, perhaps your translation lacks, God causes. Now, why is it? Why is it here and not there? Well, one very early manuscript does not have this little phrase, and many manuscripts after that, many middle and later manuscripts also don't have it. And it seems best to view this God causes as a later addition by a scribe to try and help people understand what's being said here. And so it seems that the consensus is that the King James Version probably gets the original Greek best when it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. But at the same time, a translation like the NASB's is also accurate. Is it possible that everything works together for good just by chance, like some evolutionary theory just, oh, it just makes it happen? Absolutely not. We know God's divine hand is behind everything and including this promise. And so while it's not original to the text, I think it's thoroughly accurate, totally accurate theologically and not misleading at all to say that God causes all things to work together for good because he does. Nothing else could. Only God could. So we know, we can trust that God is at work. Now what is meant by all things? Well, it's helpful to look into the Greek because in the Greek this term means all things. Literally what it means. And it's drawing upon the weaknesses of verse 26 that we talked about. It's drawing heavily upon the sufferings in verses 18 to 25. But it also includes positives too. Naturally, right? If Paul wanted to just express the negatives, he might say Paul would something like all negative things or all your sufferings or something of that sort. But we see the hills of life and the valleys of life are all included here. Every good and bad thing we experience fits into this promise from the highest crest to the lowest creek. All things work together for good. Now, given the, that we're in a passage on suffering and glory, I think Paul's primary focus and ours this morning will be on how suffering works out for our good. Now, furthermore, it says all things work together for good, not 
that God makes all things good. Right? God's not making everything good. That would be ridiculous. God cannot take evil and just declare it good. He's not declaring death or divorce or disease or things like these to be good. That's not at all what he's doing. Rather, rather we have this promise that even in the evil we face, for the Christian, good is going to result. God is sovereignly working, even in the worst evils, for the good of every believer. Not to transform the evil itself into good, but to bring good to you despite the evil. And this truly is a great promise. This truly is one that we need to grasp and hold. But we also need to note also that it's a promise only for born-again Christians. Notice it says, to those who love God. To those who love God. This is a qualification to the promise. <clears throat> but it's a qualification met by all Christians. It's not that it's a warning that if you only love God enough, will this then work out? That's not what he's saying here. It's a statement of fact that all Christians, by nature of the new birth, love God, though often imperfectly. We love God. This applies only to Christians. No non-Christian actually loves God. Otherwise, they would repent and turn to Jesus, his son. And so verse 28 is not a blanket promise to be applied to all humanity, but only to those who put their faith in Jesus. So I must ask you now, is that you? Can this promise apply to you? Have you forsaken all notions of your own works and surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you placed your faith in his death on your behalf and in his resurrection from the dead? God loves you first. He loves you so much he sent his son. He proved it to you by sending him to die in your place. What grace. So do you now love God? Those who believe that is the natural response. Loving God is the natural state of any saved person and that's why it's one of the qualifications upon which all things work together for God, for good. We love God because he first loved us. Now the end of the verse adds another qualification saying to those who are called according to his purpose. Lest anyone think they can love themselves into God's kingdom, love God and get into his kingdom, you have to also be called by God. God must call you. He must draw you in. This is the effectual call of salvation. There is a general call that goes out to the whole world. Right? Be saved. Jesus says many are called but few are chosen. Matthew 22, 14. So there is that general call, but what is being referred to here is the theologians call the effectual call. All whom God calls will come to salvation. So we see God at work, and we see, in one sense, you at work in this passage. It's not separate. God is working in you. You must be born again. You must be a true lover of God, that he has called to salvation for this great promise to be yours. But the wonderful thing is, if you are a true lover of God, if you have turned in faith to Christ for forgiveness, then you are born again. You are a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, and this promise is true for you. This promise is true for you, and you can have full confidence in this promise, and you can apply it daily to yourself in any situation you face, even in the worst of the worst situations. Even in the worst. Now, this might rub you the wrong way, but for the Christian, God turns everything for good. And I mean everything. Your child has rebelled against you and wants nothing to do with the church. God is working it for your good. Your spouse has lost interest in your marriage and wants a divorce. God is working it for your good. Your greatest desire as a single is to be married, yet your fiance unexpectedly breaks up with you. God is working it for your good. 
you've had a miscarriage or multiple of them, God is working it for your good. You've been diagnosed with debilitating illness or disease that you'll carry the rest of your life, God is working it for your good. Your life's business goes bankrupt. You have no idea how to feed your family. God is working it for your good. How can all this be? How can we trust this seemingly impossible promise from God? We've quickly touched on every little word and phrase of verse 28 except one. We have yet to define good. To do that, we have to go into verse 29 and see point two, God's purpose. God's purpose will help us define what is good. Now we know God. He is omniscient. He's all-powerful. He has a purpose for everything that he does and for everything that he allows to occur. As we've said, God is not the author of evil, but in his divine omniscient wisdom, he does allow it. And verse 28 tells us it's for our good. Now the purpose for God doing all he does and allowing all that he does must be under, we need to understand good in order to get what it means. And misunderstanding good is where people get in trouble and where people like myself have even misapplied this passage. Such a promise, if misunderstood and misapplied, can be downright perplexing and even provocative. And so verse 29 comes to our aid. And it comes to our aid. We've already seen that the promise applies to those who are saved by God, but why does God even bother to call and save anyone? Why does God bother to call and save anyone? End of verse 28 tells us, according to his purpose. It's according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? Verse 29 explains it. Verse 29 explains it. This is going to unpack verse 28 for you. I don't think Paul would have written verse 28 if he didn't have verse 29 already in mind as he was writing it. Look at verse 29. Look at me again. I'm going to read it again. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. Do you see it there? Do you see the purpose? Right in the middle. God's purpose is that we be conformed to the image of his Son. Friends, we are born in the image of the first Adam, born enslaved to sin with eternal death waiting us. Adam was made in the image of God, and so were we. But thanks to Adam's sin, the human race has been marred. The image of God, though still all over us, is now tarnished, stained, and soaked with the deepest dye. Salvation is about returning us to our rightful image, the pure, unvarnished image of God. Such an image is vibrantly depicted for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Just consider these verses, how Jesus reflects God. It says, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.19, all the fullness of God dwells in him. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2.6, he existed in the form of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Christ is the image of God. In John 10.30, Jesus says it himself, I am and the Father are one. And so if you see Jesus' image, you see God's image. And God's purpose is to make you like Jesus, to transform you into the perfect image of his perfect son. Not to become Jesus, but to become like Jesus. 
That is God's great and overarching purpose for your life. That is the will of God. That is what the Spirit is praying for you for, that you would be conformed into the image of Jesus. That is God's purpose in creating you and in ordaining everything you go through in life. Now what does it mean to be conformed? What are we looking at here? Well this word conformed is where we get our word morph. Morph, indeed the very word is sumorphus, the root being morphus. When something morphs, right, it remains the same, the substance remains the same, but its character changed. Like H2O, when it goes from ice to water, its substance has not changed, but its character has. It is still H2O, but is no longer firm ice. It is now soothing water. It has morphed. God's purpose in everything that happens to you is to morph you from a hard and firm sinner into a soft and soothing saint. He's making you holy. With every trial and every tear, he's morphing you. Suffering and hard times, they expose you. Our, our sins, our frustrations, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, our love for this world, our mistrust in God, and so much more. And as it's revealed, the spirit in you is convicting you and drawing you near to God. And you're being transformed into the image of Jesus. Transformed into the image of Jesus. And that, dear friends, is your ultimate good. That is what you most need. Our image of good as Americans is quite often influenced by our American dream. If it benefits me in tangible ways that I can see or feel, then it's good. If I'm not tangibly benefited by it, then it's not good. That's not God's definition of good, nor is it Paul's. Hear this well. Your greatest good is your transformation into the image of Christ. There is nothing better for you in this life or the next than putting off the marred image of Adam and putting on the perfect image of Christ. Verse 29 will reveal this to you. Look how it starts in verse 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknew speaks of God's eternal relationship with you that he's had in eternity past before you even existed. The word know is the Old Testament sense. It's the Old Testament sense of a relationship. If you know someone, you have a deep and personal relationship with them. What is being said is that God has had a personal relationship with you from before you ever existed, from before time began, even before time began. Wow. Now that is, that is mind-boggling, and isn't, that is outside of total comprehension. That is not something we can wrap our minds around, but it is true. God has known you personally and intimately before you were ever conceived, before you ever existed. And the verse also says he has chosen you. He has elected you. You are his child, not by any merit of your own, but by his divine decree. And because of that, that's all in foreknow, because of that, verse 29 then says he also predestined you. This is actually not speaking about predestination unto salvation, but like the verse says, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. In God's foreknowing of you, his eternal purpose with you, is, it propels him then to set his good purposes on you. His eternal relationship and his sovereign election propels him to set his good purposes on you. He has predestined you for the greatest good imaginable, and that is to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And verse 29 adds at the end, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
this plays right into it. The, the main thrust in this last phrase comes at the end when it says, among many brethren. We already know Jesus is the firstborn, meaning he's the preeminent one, the preeminent one over all creation. That's what firstborn means when applied to Jesus. It's not that he was created first. Jesus is not created. He's eternal, but that he is preeminent. He's first in importance, just like a firstborn son back in those days was, first, was it highest in importance. But he adds the phrase here, Paul does, adding the phrase that he'd be firstborn, preeminent among many brethren. This points to God's motive behind all this. You see, God loves Jesus so much. He loves Jesus so much that he wants to glorify him and exalt him and bring him praise. And God set out to create humankind so that Jesus might be praised, worshiped, and exalted. But imperfect creatures such as ourselves, thanks to Adam, cannot bring him glory. Even Jesus in John 5, 41 says, I do not receive glory from men, as he speaks to the sinful Pharisees in front of him. We need to be made perfect like Jesus in order to bring glory to Jesus and to bring glory to him forever. And maybe you're thinking right now, well, I'm not glorified yet, so why am I praising Jesus? Why? Because you're already in God's eyes like Jesus. His righteousness has been imputed to you, and so your praise goes up to him. God has created us for this purpose. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that God created a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness to walk in marvelous light. What's the purpose? To proclaim his praises. We are to proclaim the praises of Jesus. That's our eternal purpose. God Jesus cannot be praised by children of the devil, but only by his own children. And so he has adopted us, and now he is transforming us into the image of Jesus. So that Jesus might be exalted forever as firstborn, as preeminent among many brethren, which is you. God loves Jesus so much that he's doing this for him, and God loves you so much that he's making you part of his family so that you can praise Jesus and can forever participate in the goodness of his eternal glory. That is God's goal for your existence, to participate in the goodness of the glory of his son. And he has predestined you for it from eternity past. And if that's God's eternal goal for your very existence, how obviously must that also be his entire goal for your life here and now? And if that's his goal for your life, everything in your life is driving to that end. Everything you experience is driving to that end. That end is your ultimate good. Whether the things you experience are good or evil, God is working it out to that good end. Every trial you face as a Christian, is morphing your character and making you more like Christ. That's your greatest good. Your greatest good is transformation into the image of Christ. And so when it comes to the magnificent promise of verse 28 that all things work together for good, God is speaking here about how all things work together to transform you into the image of Christ. Everything is designed or used by God to make you like Jesus, and that is the best good there is. That's God's purpose, perfect purpose for you. So everything that assails you in life, everything you're struggling with today, everything that will come at you in the future, God is using it all to make you more like his son. But how quickly we misapply this verse, right? We tend to think that if we're just patient enough and wait long enough, 
then eventually everything will be good for us in this life and we'll eventually be comfortable and we'll eventually see physical good that will result from each trial. But that is so short-sighted, friends. We need new glasses through which to see what is truly good. So have you missed God's great promise in this passage and substitute it with one that's not there? There is no promise of good being worked out in your life as we typically define good. But there is the far better promise of God's good for us being transformed into the image of Christ. Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, concludes the same. She says this, if by good, Romans 8.28 means your comfort, convenience, health, wealth, prosperity, pleasure, or happiness, we would all question it. And she means question the validity of the promise. And she says, but your good, your ultimate good is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And when you are in God's will, called according to his purpose, everything God allows into your life is used by him to make you like Christ. Everything. End quote. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. Romans 8.28 declares a cumulative and ultimate good. Not an individual or immediate good, when Paul says for good, he clearly implies final or ultimate good, not good subjectively felt in the midst of our sufferings. We typically define our good in terms of what brings us health and happiness now. God defines it in terms of what makes us more like Jesus. It's Randy Alcorn. This is what God is promising you and me, and what a salve to the soul this can be. Charles Spurgeon has this pithy saying, he says it so succinctly. He says, if all things do not always please me, they will always benefit me. This is the best promise of life. Believer, every circumstance you face benefits you. It may not please you. You may not like it that much. You may never see good that results from it in this life. But God has a purpose. In everything, he is working in you for your ultimate good. So what must you do? Trust. Trust that your circumstances are fulfilling God's perfect purposes so that you do not lose heart. That's what we need to walk away with today. We need to trust that, your, that our circumstances are fulfilling God's perfect purposes so that we do not lose heart. And this is why the anticipation of our future glory enables endurance while here on earth and that trust in God's good purpose in each circumstance will strengthen you so you do not give up, so you do not lose heart along the way. God's good plan is not to make you happy and wealthy on earth, but to make you perfect and glorified in heaven. And that is God's plan and bring, it will bring you, to bring you all the way to glory. That's our final point. We'll see it very quickly. God's plan, point three. Look at verse 30. God has more for us in store. And he says, these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we as humans, we like things laid out in a structure, right? Baseball has nine innings with two halves. Hockey has three 20-minute periods. When you buy a new crib for your child, it has an instruction manual, step one through 34. And you know if you miss step six, you'll have to take the whole crib apart and insert that hidden screw. We like processes, unless they're annoying like the crib. We like schedules. We like a clear sequence. And so Paul gives us one. He began it in verse 29 saying, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then he explained God's purpose. And now he picks it up again in verse 30 saying, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And since we already 
are foreknown in relationship and predestined to growth in Christ. This is even before we've, been, we've ever existed. The call that we receive here is that effectual call we cannot escape. He is going to draw us to himself. And if you're saved in this room, that's already happened to you. God calls people to repent and be saved, and thus they are. God is drawing people to himself. But then after he calls them, it says he justifies them, which means he declares them righteous. The moment your heart was turned by God's call upon you, Christ's righteousness was imputed to you. It was charged to your account. So God looks at you and sees the righteousness of his son, and thus he can declare you righteous now. Thus your praises now can go up to him. Thus you can have hope in your future glorification. You've been justified. What a gift. And you cannot be condemned because you have such a declaration applied to you. You've been justified. And then the sequence rounds off with, in these whom he justified, he also glorified. And here we see glory again. The glory that we're awaiting and eagerly anticipating, the glory that drives us to endurance, that future glory upon which we trust God. But if you look closely, you'll notice it's written in the past tense. He also glorified. You can see that in any translation. And I, I, thought my, I thought my glorification was in the future. Well, for us, from our perspective, it is. But from God's timeless perspective, his outside-of-time perspective, your glorification is already a done deal. Your glorification is already etched in stone. And so Paul speaks here of your glorification as having already happened. Not because you've experienced it, you haven't, but because it is certain you are guaranteed to be glorified. And God, not being limited by time, looks at you and sees all five of these things apply to you whom he has divinely chosen and called and justified and now will glorify. Friends, if you are in Christ, your future glory is guaranteed and your ultimate good is already in the bag. It's fixed. It's certain. And no one's able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can remove this status from you. And that's what the rest of Romans 8 is all about. You are secure in Christ. And we'll see that next time as we come back to this chapter in two weeks. Before we close, a few points of application. A few points of application out of this. First, God's eternal plan is your glorification, which is your total transformation into Christ's image. This is your greatest good. Friends, you are called to believe and embrace that this is your greatest good. Second, God is working in you now to prepare you for that glory. He is making you more like Christ through every circumstance you face. And so you are called to believe and embrace that every circumstance, every circumstance is for your good. Third, there are many, many things you'll experience in life in which you'll never, never understand why. In those times, you are called to trust God, to trust that his purposes for you are good. Friends, we must trust that our circumstances are fulfilling God's perfect purposes so that we do not lose heart. This is exactly what Craig Asvelt is seeking to do. Father of Seth in the car accident story earlier. His life today is not easy, and there is no expectancy of it getting easier. He must care for his son 24-7, now being bereft of his wife for over five years. But despite this difficult and ongoing daily trial, he has learned this trust that our passage speaks of. 
that our passage drives us to. And I want to close by reading part of a letter of Craig's that he posted on his son's informational website blog. It's dated July 11th, 2016. This is 13 years into the suffering. Craig wrote this. The hopes and aspirations I had for my son, and certainly his own dreams as well, were ultimately dashed along a California freeway nearly 13 years ago, and the grief over the loss remains. We had given him the name Seth because we wanted our son to live up to the meaning of that name. It means appointed. And so view his life as particularly purposeful. From an earthly perspective, the apparent incongruity of his name's meaning and his resultant state from the accident is sadly paradoxical. We had publicly dedicated him to the Lord during our church service soon after his birth, releasing our ownership of him to God. He was now ours only on loan and God's to do with as he saw fit. But that notion has surely been tested. Was God's purpose for Seth thwarted by an accident? I don't believe so. And whether I personally approve of God's handling of the situation is beside the point. In my own life, at least for the last 13 years, faith has not, much, not so much involved believing God for something I want, but trusting Him through some deep disappointments, confusion, and images of a daunting future. Still, I am driven to conclude that Seth's life is still accomplishing unseen things by the sovereign hand of God, and that whatever he has divinely appointed for will become clear when we meet the Lord face to face someday, and then I won't be disappointed. And then Craig closes his letter with a scripture from Isaiah 55, 8 to 9, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is comforting. We need to trust that. Let us walk away today and face our sufferings and trials, whatever comes our way, with a commitment to endurance and with great and total trust in our loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray. God, what a promise we have here in Scripture to know that you care for us so much that you work in every detail of our lives and that you are working us to transform us into the perfect image of your Son. What glory awaits us in the future. What glory we have in store, Lord. Glory before your throne, glory before your Son and his presence, worshiping him night and day. God, may it be our heart's desire to be there May it be all that we think about, Lord. May we be consumed with it. May we long for it. May visions of it, Lord God, and ponderings of it give us endurance, Lord, and inspire trust. God, there are a lot of things that people in this room are struggling with even now, some big, some small. God, I do pray that you would alleviate pain and remove it from them. We do desire that, God. We ask for you to do that, and we know you can, and that many times you will. But God, not our will be done, but yours. So if it is your plan to keep the thorn in the flesh, to keep the pain there, God, may we take comfort and solace in the truths of this passage, the truths of your word, that it will still work out for our good. God, you're so great, you're so loving, and we commit ourselves to you, and we submit to your perfect and grand design for our lives.
May that be all of us, every single one of us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.